Amen. Well, take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me this morning to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, as we continue our study on the presence of God, it is my intention to conclude this series next week on God's presence. And then the following week, uh, the week before Christmas, uh, we'll do a little Christmas sermon. And then uh, don't forget, if you're able to come, we're going to have a one service on Christmas Day as well. Looking forward to celebrating Christ with you together. I was uh, raised in the home of an evangelist. My father was an evangelist. And I mean that both by gifting and by occupation. Uh, my father was a pastor throughout his ministry. And then uh, when he was actually about my age, he transitioned to become a full-time evangelist. What that meant is that he would travel place to place and people would invite him to come and he would preach and people would get saved. And the reason he transitioned to that is because he had seen in his own life that that was his gifting. Ephesians 4 talks about the giftings of pastors and prophets and teachers. And there is this gift of an evangelist. And although all of us are called to evangelize, my father just had this gift upon his life. Which meant, if my father got up and preached on tithing, 38 people would get saved. It was unbelievable. No matter what he preached about, uh, people would just get saved. And there was just this anointing upon his life. That also means that throughout my growing up, I saw thousands of people come to Christ. Thousands of people come to Christ. I would travel with him some in the summers and I would watch as he would uh, preach in stadiums and he would give the invitation and, and just hundreds of people would come and, and give their life to Christ. And so this is just kind of a normal part of my growing up. My mom and my brother are here this morning and they just remember this was just kind of part of, of growing up for us. It's just constantly seeing people get saved. And when dad was traveling and we were home, he would call and, and say, hey, uh, 20 people got saved tonight. This was just kind of what we saw. And it also meant that not only just in those events, but just as a normal part of life, I have seen workmen come to Christ at our home when dad led him to Christ or uh, taxi cab drivers or waitresses or just people we met in a store. My dad just preached and, and people came to the Lord. It was incredible to be able to grow up and see that and what a privilege and honor to, to have experienced that. What it also means is that I have spent most of my adult life feeling guilty that I haven't been able to do the same thing. Uh, throughout my life, that's always been one of those things. You know, I, I used to joke with friends. I give a big invitation and two people come forward and one changes his mind and goes back to his seat. <laughs> that's kind of my anointing. So, uh, but I think the Lord brought me to that place of that Ephesians 4 and recognizing that God really has gifted me with a pastoral heart and pastoral giftings. I love to pastor a church and there are giftings that are different there and we all do the work of the evangelist, but uh, certainly I'm gifted differently than my father, but still, it's always been just kind of a struggle, just kind of this, this weight. And, and some of that is really maybe some, some good conviction that I, I need to be more faithful in that area. But some of it, I think, is just a burden. I really want to see people come to Christ, and I know you do too. And um, I really want our church to be a church that just consistently sees people come to Christ. I don't even mean just coming forward. That's, that's secondary. Just the idea that people are just getting saved and baptized like we saw this morning. I used to think I was alone in that feeling of, of kind of low-lying guilt about not leading people to Christ. And then over the years as I've pastored, I've realized that if you grew up in a Baptist church, you carry the same guilt. Like you feel it. 
I don't think I'm alone in, in feeling like I should be leading a lot more people to Christ. And I don't think I'm alone in feeling like this is an area in which I consistently fail and I, I could do great in a thousand other areas. But this area is just one of those things that's never really seemed to be great for me. And I, I think I've discovered that all of us in some way feel that way. If you're serious about relationship with Christ, that does kind of carry this low-lying guilt. And then all of a sudden we come to church and find out we're going to have another sermon about it. And the guilt may get worse. It's not my intention at all this morning, but I will say like our mission is to lead people to trust and follow Jesus, right? If we're not doing that, let's close up. Like our vision is every neighbor in every nation. Think about that. Like our vision is every neighbor in every nation coming and encountering the presence of God. That's our vision, which means it can't just be me doing it or you doing it. It has to be all of us doing it because your neighbors are not my neighbors and my neighbors are not your neighbors. And if we're going to get to the nations, we have to all give and all participate. And if we're going to get every neighbor, that means every one of us have some role in this. But I've discovered over the years that guilt is a really bad motivator. It just doesn't last very long. And it doesn't produce really any good fruit long-term. And sometimes we just do stuff because we're supposed to do it, right? We, we don't go home every day and feel just thrilled about all the responsibilities we have. We don't go to work today and feel thrilled about it. Sometimes we just do what's right. And sometimes evangelism is just doing what's right in obedience to the Lord. But it would be my hope that we would, as a church, understand the connection between the three words of our vision statement. That our vision is for everyone that comes to this church to experience God's presence, to enjoy God's presence, and then as a result, to expand God's presence. And that we would see in our church those three things working together. Because the most effective people in witnessing are not those who do it out of a sense of duty, but those who do it out of a genuine delight. Like Jesus is clear in Luke 9 that out of the overflow of our heart... Our mouth speaks. We do tend to talk about what we love, don't we? Like without people asking oftentimes. Sometimes you will meet someone and you've known them and, and you know when you encounter them, they're going to talk about the thing they always talk about. Because we tend to talk about what we love. And so I think our way to get people to evangelize in the past has been more an outside motivation to the inside when it seems to me the paradigm of the Bible is from an inside to an outside, it begins with a heart that loves Jesus and a heart that has been ignited with a passion for Jesus. And what I want to do is I, I long and pray for us to meet an evangelistic church. And honestly, in January, we're going to have a 21 days of prayer and fasting. And our emphasis is going to be writing down specific names of people who are lost and praying that they'll get saved next year. So we're, we're planning that. But my desire for our church would be that that's happening out of people who are filled with Jesus. And that's kind of what we talk about when we say we want to experience his presence daily and we want to learn to enjoy him. And then as a result of that, we're expanding his presence. The metaphor we've been using for that over the last few months has been the metaphor of water. And that's because that's the metaphor we get in the Garden of Eden. We began our series on the presence of God saying that Eden is a picture of life for us. It's a picture of God's desire. It's also a picture of how everything is going to end at the end of the Bible, that there is this garden of Eden symbolizing where God dwells, his presence. There's a river flowing into Eden, symbolizing that everything in life is sustained by the presence of God. But then there are four rivers flowing out of Eden, showing us that God's desire was always, even before the fall, that his presence would cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. 
And then Jesus reaffirms this in John 7 when he said, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And so we drink and we drink and we drink. Why? Because we believe that Jesus alone is the all satisfying reality of life. And so we drink through his word and we drink as we sing and we drink as we fellowship and we drink as we get in small groups and we drink as we serve in ministry. We're just drinking from Jesus. Why? Because we have tasted everything else and nothing else satisfies but Jesus. And so we drink. But God's desire is not that we just drink, but that he continues. And out of that person who drinks will flow rivers of living water. And it says this, he says about the spirit. And so God's desire is that his presence now not dwelling in a temple, not dwelling in a tabernacle, not simply dwelling in the person of Jesus Christ, but is now dwelling in us by his spirit. And the more that we drink, the more rivers of living water are flowing out of us. And honestly, to the degree to which we drink is the degree to which water is flowing out. And so we start with the drinking. We start with the longing for God and intimacy with him. But to use another metaphor, we could talk about this in terms of, of light. John chapter 1 gives us this idea of Jesus as the light of the world. It says in John 1, 1 through 5, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Listen to John 1, 4. In him was life. Jesus is life. He's the way, the truth, and the life. There is no life, no real life outside of Jesus. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world, and whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, listen, but will have the light of life. Now what theologians call this, and this is, you could write this down, is, is divine illumination. Divine illumination. That's a fancy way of saying that before you come to Christ, and the only way you could ever come to Christ is if first God, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the gospel, turns the light on. You could not see Jesus if the light was not on. And so we are born dark and our hearts are dark and we cannot see the glory of Jesus Christ. But 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says that what happens is God begins to turn the light on and we begin to see the glory of Jesus Christ in his fullness. And so all of a sudden, Jesus becomes different to us. He is no longer just a little baby in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger surrounded by a group of strangely Caucasian Middle Eastern people. That's not him anymore. You, you start to see that he is, he's glorious and you love him and, and you want to follow him and you, and you like him. You don't just love him. And, and you start to see that there is real life found in Jesus Christ. And sometimes that happens in people when the light just, like, just comes on. Some of you just have that moment. The light just came on. Some of you, it's, it's really like a dimmer switch. And over time, you start to see the glory of Christ. I had a guy come to me after the first service. And he said, for me, for me, the light just came on one day. And for my wife, it just, it was this dimmer. And so slowly, but surely, she began to see the light of the gospel. And it may be happening this morning. It could be that for the first time, some of you are starting to get some taste for Jesus and some desire for Jesus, some longing for Jesus. You have seen the brokenness of your own life. You have seen the darkness of your life. And you have begun to see that, that there is something that can fix the brokenness. There is something that can bring light in the darkness. There is a way, the truth, and the life, and it's Jesus Christ. And if you begin to feel that desire, listen, you don't ignore that because that's the Holy Spirit of God turning the light on in your life. 
What an unbelievable, loving, and gracious thing for God to do, to begin to turn the light on in your life so you would desire Jesus for the very first time. And if that's true, then you just run to Jesus. You trust him. You choose to follow him. You receive his death as the payment for your sins. You come in a right standing with God, and you do it today. Divine illumination, God begins to turn the light on, but, but God's desire is then, Matthew chapter 5, that that light which is in us would now begin to shine out of us. His vision is that we would be a city on a hill, and, and so we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that God begins to ignite a flame in our life through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is like a little fire that comes into our heart, and as we feed the fire, as we read and as we study and as we get in the context of other believers and as we sing songs, well, what happens is, is the fire gets Stronger and stronger and stronger until we're ablaze with the glory of God and others come in contact with the heat. You think about Moses, Nexus 34. Moses goes up to a mountain and he spends time with God. It's the most amazing thing. The presence of God comes down on the mountain and, and, and Moses goes up. It says this, Moses met with God face to face like a friend talks to a friend. Isn't that good? Many of us have never encountered that kind of like that kind of thought. Like Jesus no longer is a master, just a master, but as a friend and a father, a lover of our soul. And so Moses knew this friend-to-friend relationship with God. They just talked, and Moses came down from the mountain. You remember what happened? He had to put a veil on his face because he was glowing. He was glowing. Like, that's what we're saying. What we're saying is, is a life that is so filled with the presence of God, a life that experiences him and enjoys him and now is glowing. Why? Because the radiance of the glory of God, which has been shown in your heart, now shows through your life. Now, people are, are, are only saved by hearing the gospel. We know that. But knowing that you tend to talk about what you love, I want to motivate you from the inside out. And what I want to do this morning is I want to give you just one practical help on this. And again, uh, when we talk about why we don't share the gospel and how to share the gospel, there's a thousand things to be said. And I'm not saying everything this morning. I'm saying one thing this morning, okay? We could talk about this for weeks, but I want to say one thing to you. I want to motivate you. Through our understanding of the presence of God and God's desire for this water to flow out and this light to shine out in this practical way, I want to motivate you to stay really close to Jesus and stay really close to lost people. That's it. Stay really close to Jesus and stay really close to lost people. And I get that from our text this morning in John chapter 20. So I want to read John 20, verses 19 through 23. This is Jesus after his resurrection, speaking to his disciples. If you're there in John 20, say amen. It says this, reading verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the door being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. So they had just seen what happened to Jesus. They're terrified. Remember, Peter had denied Jesus out of fear. And so they're Locked in fear of the Jews. And it says this, and Jesus came and stood among them. And he said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hand and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the father has sent me, even so I am sending you. As the father sent me, even so I'm sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, there are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. 
Now, there are five Great Commission texts in the New Testament. Matthew has one, Mark has one, Luke and John and Acts 1.8. And every one of them are distinct to the book in which they're written. And so if we want to understand Matthew 28, 18 through 20, you have to understand what Matthew's trying to do. And if you want to understand Mark 16.15, you have to understand what Mark is doing. And if you want to understand Luke 24, then you have to understand what Luke was doing. And certainly Acts 1.8 is not understood in except for in the context of what Luke is trying to do in the gospel, in the, in the book of Acts. And so it is in John. John 2021, 20, his kind of sharing of the Great Commission is closely tied with everything John is trying to do in this book. And it begins with seeing Jesus as the one who is sent. No one talks about this more than John does. Jesus is the one who is sent by the Father. He is on mission with the Father. Jesus is a missionary sent by the Father. John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And verse 17 says, he did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus is the sent one. And listen, if you feel as if Jesus has come into this world to condemn you, that's not Jesus. You are already condemned because of your sin. Jesus did not come to bring more condemnation. Jesus came that the condemnation might be lifted and you might be saved, that you might be able to say there is now no condemnation for me because I'm in Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to lift the weight and the guilt and the condemnation. And so what you do is you already have your condemnation. Your conscience is already condemning you. You already know that you're lost without Jesus. And so what you do is you come to Jesus. And in coming to Jesus, he gives you rest from that condemnation. He gives you rest from that guilt. That's what Jesus has come to do. But he was sent by God, it says in John three seventeen for that purpose. And so now all of a sudden in John 20, 21, he says in the same way that I have been sent by the father, so I am sending you. And the reason we know this is not just for the disciples, because we might think that maybe this is just for the 12 is because in John 17, 18, Jesus is praying for everyone who would ever believe in him in John 17. If you ever want to know how Jesus prays for you, read John 17. Jesus prays not only for these, but all that would come behind them. That's us. Every one of us who follow Jesus, he's praying for us, and he prays the exact same prayer. He says, Father, as you have sent me, so I send them. So every one of us are sent. All of us, in the same way Jesus is a missionary, all of us are missionaries. By the nature of our calling to follow Jesus, every one of us are sent. But what makes John 20, 21 so significant is two little words, as and so. This is the shortest of all the Great Commission texts, but the one that may require the most thought, because the only way that we understand in the context of John how we're sent is by understanding how Jesus was sent. As the Father sends me, even so I send you. So it means that we have to begin with seeing how the Father sent the Son, and you can spend your life on that. That could be the rest of your life. The rest of your life could be the study of the Gospel of John to see the way in which the Father sent the Son. There is a limitless amount of things to say there. But for our purposes this morning and our understanding of God's presence flowing through us, I want you to see two ways in which the Father sent the Son. And so it is that God sends us intimately and incarnationally. Intimately and incarnationally. And, and kids, if you're taking notes and don't know how to spell incarnationally, ask your parents because I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Intimately and incarnationally. That's the way in which the Father sent the Son. That gets us both this idea of being close to Jesus and really close to lost people. 
So let's look at those two together. Jesus was sent intimately. And what I mean by that is he was sent in perfect, unbreaking communion with the Father. Jesus was constantly receiving from the Father. He did nothing without the Father. Everything he received, he received from the Father. He was listening to the Father. He was meeting for the Father. He was getting away late at night alone with the Father. He was waking up early in the morning to be with the Father. There was this unbreaking relationship between he and the Father. This may be the most prominent theme about Jesus in the Gospel of John. That Jesus lived in constant submission and constant connection, perfectly united with the Father. And Jesus would often say, what is coming out of me is coming directly from the Father. So listen, here's what's amazing. Even in the life of Jesus, you see the picture of Eden. There's things flowing into Jesus that are now flowing out. The light is shining in Jesus and the light is is shining out. And so even in Jesus, in his humanity, you see this, this picture of Eden. That Jesus too was receiving from the Father. And what you see in his ministry, his life and his message is everything he was receiving. And there's this constant connection between Jesus being sent and Jesus constantly receiving. Because the way in which he was sent is someone who is dependent upon the Father. Write down John 5, 19 through 30. John 5, 19 through 30. I want to read this passage for us. John 5, 19 through 30. Listen to the emphasis here on both being sent and uh, Jesus' connection, intimacy, submission, dependence upon the Father. John 5, starting in verse 19. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son, listen to this, can do nothing of his own accord. What an amazing thought. But only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Father does not honor the Son, does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believe him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For the Father has life in himself, and listen to this dependence, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So the life of the Son is coming from the Father, and he has given him. The authority is coming from the Father to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Listen to verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus himself is saying, I can do nothing of my own. I don't even know what to do unless I get it from the Father, and I don't know what to say unless I get it from the Father. Now, what's amazing is this. Out of the countless numbers of times in which Jesus says something like this, this passage in John 5, 19 is the only time he says, I only do what the Father does. Every other time he says it, He's saying, I only say what I hear. Meaning the emphasis is not just on action. It's not just on the things that I do. It's Jesus saying, the words that are coming out of me, I am hearing from God the Father. Listen to some examples of that. 
John 7, 16, Jesus says, my teaching is not mine, but it's him who sent me. John 8, 26, Jesus says, I declare to the world what I have heard from him. John 12, 49 through 50, what I say, therefore I say as the father has told me. John 14, 24, the word that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. What that means is this, Jesus operated every moment in such a close communion with the father that everything that he was saying was coming from the father. Now, have you ever noticed this? Have you ever noticed that Jesus doesn't use the same gospel presentation all the time? Right? Jesus doesn't do what we often do, which is we learn a gospel presentation, and no matter who we're talking to, we just use it. Do we need to learn gospel presentations? Absolutely. We need to know the facts of the gospel. But oftentimes what happens is we're so concerned that we might miss something in what we've memorized that we don't share the gospel, and, and, and it's, it's, it's not fluid at all. It's not flowing in any way because we got to make sure we get all the facts, or even worse, we get out our card. Point one, you're going to hell. Point to whatever it is. Jesus does not function that way. When he meets a woman at the well, he talks about water. When he feeds the multitudes, he talks about bread. When he heals a man who is blind, he talks about sight. Isn't it an amazing thing that Jesus did not have a canned presentation? And the reason is, is because as he was hearing from the Father, he was speaking to people. I want to say to you, listen, a Catholic needs to hear the gospel different than a Muslim. And a guy raised in the Baptist church who, who has never trusted Christ and doesn't like the church needs to hear different than both of those. And if you want your gospel presentations not to be so stinking awkward, well, then just talk about Jesus in the context of normal life with whatever is going on. And the way you do that is in the intimacy with the Father. And so we learn our presentations and we learn the facts of the gospel. Everyone needs to be able to give the facts of the gospel, but we weave those in naturally, flowing out of intimacy with the Father in every context God gives us, but that does not happen unless we stay close to the Father. You know, when you, when you get to John 15 and Jesus talks about the vine and the branches, you know what he's doing? He's simply putting into words what the disciples have seen for three years. What the disciples saw for three years is just Jesus in every context, saying what needs to be said, saying the right thing at the moment. And this just kind of flow of works and flow of words that was coming through intimacy with, Jesus, with the Father. Jesus was just doing this. And then at the end in John 15, he says, before I leave you, let me tell you how it's worked all this time. I'm the vine and you're the branches. And if you want my joy and if you want my fruit, abide in me. Let my word abide in you. Know me, know the word, stay close to me. And what will happen is the life that is in me, the water that is in me, the light that is in me flowing in you will then flow out of you only as you are connected to me. Everything flows from the presence of God. Everything flows from the presence of God. All of the life and light that the lost people around you need, God has, and his intention is for it to flow from your intimacy with him. Stay close to God. Second, stay really close to lost people. This is what I mean by Jesus was sent incarnationally. What I mean is he was sent in the flesh. 
We started by reading this morning about Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so the beautiful mystery, the Christmas mystery of the incarnation is John 1.14, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. And then John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God at any time, but Jesus has made him known. So if you're wondering how you come to know the invisible God, and if you're struggling because someone is asking you to trust God, and yet he's invisible, well, Jesus has made the invisible God visible. So if you've always just thought, I just want to see God. If I could see God, then I would trust him. Read the Gospels and see God in the flesh. God in the flesh coming to dwell among us. Jesus taking on our flesh. And this was necessary for our salvation because the first Adam who represented us failed us miserably. Jesus Christ, the second Adam, fulfilled every requirement of the law. And in so doing, here's here's the Christmas gift you can get. In so doing, through faith, we receive all of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is as if every single command of the law we have obeyed perfectly because Jesus did. And all of the condemnation of our sin and the full outpouring of the wrath of God is poured out on Jesus while we get all of his righteousness. That's the trade we get in salvation. You have to be perfect. You have to have the perfect righteousness in order to get into heaven. But you don't have it, but Jesus does. And so we trust that Jesus' righteousness is credited to your account and all of your sin is credited to his. And he took on the full outpouring of the wrath of God so you could have nothing but righteousness. That's why you stand with no condemnation this morning because he took it all. He took all the condemnation. He felt he, all of the weight of your sin was placed upon him. And so he had to come in our flesh in order to do that. But listen, there is still part of his incarnational ministry that is true with the, as he has been sent. So we are sent. And it is simply this truth that people are never reached from a distance. They're reached from nearness. Jesus was not sent to reach us from a distance. He was sent to reach us in nearness. And so it is God's intention has always been that we, the people of God who have his presence are then the visible presence of God. And so the invisible God is now not only being seen through Jesus, it is being seen through his people in the context of corporate worship. And every time you meet a believer, we are the visible presence of Jesus. John Stott, great theologian, was writing about John 20, 21, and specifically about the incarnation of Jesus and how it affects us. And listen carefully to what he said. Listen to what he says. He says, I personally believe that our failure to obey the implications of this command, the incarnational command, is the greatest weakness of evangelical Christians in the field of evangelism today. We just do not identify with people. We believe so strongly in proclamation that we tend to proclaim our message from a distance. We sometimes appear like people who shout advice to drowning men from the safety of the seashore. We don't dive in to rescue them because we're afraid of getting wet. And indeed of great per- greater perils than this. But Jesus Christ did not broadcast salvation from the sky. He visited us in great humility. Listen, we are never less like Jesus. We are never less like Jesus than we gather in a church and talk about how bad sinners are without going and spending time with sinners. We are never less like Jesus than we talk about how terrible our world is and all of the things that people are doing and how wicked everything is without spending time with those people. 
And we see in the model of Jesus, this incarnation of going to people. And this is Romans 10. Romans 10 is that we don't just send a message, we send messengers. I mean, we've been talking about the Naba people who we're trying to, re- who we're trying to reach. And, and I, I just think about how much easier it would be to just drop some gospel tracts. Can you imagine that? Like we, we, just, we just rent a helicopter, a plane or something. We would just, we just drop gospel tracks and, you know, we'd put like a parachute on them so we don't kill anybody, but I kind of defeat the purpose. But like we just put this bundle of, of gospel tracks and we drop it down and it slowly descends and it opens up and there's the gospel. We don't do that. You know why? Because the message is given through people. We send people. How are they going to hear unless someone is sent? God sends people. There are messengers. And so people are only saved by the message, but they're saved by the means of messengers, which does not happen if we're not close to the people who need it the most. We talk about neighbors and nations. Our vision is that every neighbor of someone who goes to Prince Avenue Baptist Church is touched by the presence of God. So just think about that right now. Like I had somebody in my previous church invite me to come over to dinner and share the gospel with their neighbors. And I said, no, because they're your neighbors and not my neighbors. And I have my own neighbors. So you do your neighbors, I'll do my neighbors. Every neighbor. There's no guilt here. It's just the responsibility that God has given us to be the visible presence of Jesus Christ that every single neighbor is your responsibility. And God's intention of helping them see the glory of Christ and the way in which they'll see the light come on is by seeing it radiating from your life, beginning not from the outside in, not from some rote presentation, not from some sense of guilt, but from a genuine love for Jesus Christ that is flowing out of you. Why? Because you've not only stayed close to lost people, you've stayed close to him. Now I have to believe when the disciples heard this, this was incredibly overwhelming. They had just seen him murdered. And then Jesus says, hey, one last thing before I go. As the father sent me, so I send you. That's gotta be super exciting, doesn't it? So the same feeling that we have, of how does this work, is the same feeling they had. And let me give you this last thing here. Look at what it says. Look back at verses 21 and 22. So Jesus said, peace be with you, John 20, 21. As the Father has sent me, even so I'm sending you. And so the weight comes, right? All the feeling of, okay, God, another sermon on evangelism. And so how does this work? Where do I get the courage for this? And where do I get the words to say? And then he says in verse 22, and when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit will come in Acts 1.8. But what he's doing is he's symbolizing here exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. In the same way that God breathed life into Adam, so it is that God will breathe life into you by his spirit. Where do I get this? Where, where does this flow? It flows from the Holy Spirit. It flows from the fullness of the Holy Spirit. It flows from you seeking him in his word, being active in ministry, seeking purity so that you might be a clean vessel filled with the spirit of God, seeking his presence through intimacy with him. And as he is filling you with his spirit, then you're getting the words and you're getting the boldness and you're getting the courage. And all of a sudden in this supernatural way, just like Jesus said it would happen, you'll come to a moment when you need to to say something, you'll forget your presentation you remembered, and God will give you something. Because there's rivers of living water that are flowing through you. Because our connection from our responsibility to God is his presence. That's the way in which it makes it happen. It doesn't flow out of a sense of duty. It flows out of a sense of delight. 
And so my one admonition is to stay close to Jesus and stay really close to lost people. Get in the context of lost people and stay with them and love them and just be normal with them. Don't be weird. And just talk about Jesus and just love Jesus and let them see Jesus through you. So my invitation this morning is this. I, I just want us to pray. I always feel my deficiency in this area and I want this to be a reality of my life. And I don't know what area in which you need to pray the most. Your intimacy with Jesus, your nearness to lost people, whatever it is. But I just want you to pray and say, God, please, would you help this to be a reality in my life? Your life flowing through me. And if you wanna come and talk to someone about your relationship with Jesus Christ, if you wanna come and talk to us, let us pray over you or with you about anything, we'd love to do that. But some of you may just wanna come and pray. Maybe as a couple, as a family, individual, just pray, Lord, may this be a reality in my life. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.